does God really care? I don't know if you've had those thoughts. I know I have. When life circumstances are hard and difficult, you sometimes wonder, or it just seems like you're, you're alone, and there's no support, there's no concern. Uh, you could be in a room of people, but yet feel like you're all alone. And, and, and maybe this is the question you're asking today. It's not about, does God care? Does anyone care? And the stories of the scriptures, as we are moving towards Easter now as a church, and, and which is the high point, it is the high moment of, of, of the Christian expression, is, is the celebration of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're moving towards that through the scriptures now. We're, we're going to move pretty fast. We're flying kind of at F-16 speeds. Uh, the question that, that comes up throughout the Bible is, is, does God care? Is he concerned? Does he understand? Is he watching? And perhaps you came here this morning, or you're watching online, you're wondering, does God care? Is, is, he, is he aware? Is he, is he listening? Is, is he concerned? And I hope today, as you come to the text as you look at this story in the book of Exodus of God redeeming his people, of delivering them out of Egypt into the promised land, that you'll see that, that yeah, actually God does care, and that just as he cared for them, he too can care for you. We talked about Abraham last week. How do you move forward with God? By faith. And Abraham is this man given a great promise. God enters into this agreement. We call it in Bible terms a covenant. God swears by himself. I'm going to make you into a great nation, Abraham. But guess what? Abraham's this old man and he's childless. Yeah, nice joke, God. And Abraham has to wait for the promise of God. Finally, he gets his son Isaac. And of course, the supreme test, he's he, willing to offer his son on the, on the altar. And, and God tells him to stop. And, and, and so that's, that's the story of the beginning of the faith and of the people of Israel. Isaac has two sons, these twins, born. Esau's the oldest. Jacob is the youngest. They are fraternal twins. They are not identical. Esau grows into this hairy redneck, you know, bow hunter, you know, kind of like half the guys in Lloyd Minster, you know, he's like, you know, driving a big truck with, with big meats, you know, and, you know, wear, wearing, you know, uh, you know, camouflage or some kind of red and black check thing, you know, like, he's one of those guys, you know, doesn't shave, you know, and, uh, you know, maybe there's even like a round circle in the back of his jeans, he's one of those guys, you know, his brother Jacob is not like that, you know, he's the baby faced, you know, skinny jeans, you know, Italian shoes, you know, trading recipes with his buddies, you know, keto recipes, you know, down on White Avenue in Edmonton. Like, these are the brothers, right? As, as, as far apart as you could imagine, these are Jacob and, and Esau, the, the, the sons of Isaac. Rebecca is Isaac's wife. She likes the younger one. He's the mama's boy, you know, and, and Esau is dad's man. And he's the hunter. He's bringing home fresh wild game. You know, he's got the deer sausage and the elk, you know, jerky and all that stuff, you know. And so, so you know, and this is, this is, this is the beginning. We, we see, okay, sin enters the world and, and God's working through this, this line of people. But people are still messed up. And, and it's good news for us because, like, the families in the Bible are dysfunctional families. Like your family and like my family. There is no perfect family except the one that God is making when he invites people into relationship with him. We'll get to there in a moment. But here's Jacob and Esau. And there's this family tension and this favoritism going on, right? And, and, and of course, in the culture, the firstborn was the, the son of honor. 
He received the double portion of the inheritance. He would carry on the leadership of the clan in the father's absence and after his death. And so, so he, it was a prestigious position, the firstborn, sometimes called the birthright. Esau comes home from hunting one day, and Jacob's got this wonderful little recipe going on the pot there. And Esau's like, hey, give me some of your stew. And Jacob's like, no, I'll trade you. Well, what? For what? Well, for your birthright. Okay, I'll, you can have my birthright. Give me the stew. You know, and in a moment of, of just absolute stupidity and, and ignorance, suddenly the transaction has occurred, and, and, and Jacob receives from his brother the right of the firstborn. Now, the father doesn't know about this transaction, and so as the father gets old, he's ready to bless the oldest. Mom hears about it, and so she, can, she, she you know, conspires behind the back and, 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 and has Jacob put on some, some goat skins, and she cooks up this thing, and he goes in, and he receives the father's blessing. This was a big deal. It's still a big deal today, understand. Dads, moms, your kids desire your blessing long for it. You should think about the day of your own death. I, I, don't, I don't think that's a bad idea, but say, if you had the chance to speak to your children as you knew you were dying, what would you say? You should think about that. Jacob deceives his dad into giving him the blessing. And uh, Esau's out hunting. He brings in the, the wild moose, and he puts it in front of his dad. He's looking for the blessing. He's like, I already gave blessing. What are you, who are you? I'm Esau. What are you talking about? And, then, and so now the brothers are mad at each other. Esau's going to kill his brother. Jacob runs away. And, and so the story begins. This is like a horrific like horror story and tragedy. Jacob is a conniver, a schemer, a manipulator until he meets someone who's even better at it than him. His future father-in-law. <laughs> he sees this beautiful girl, Rachel, just whew, outstanding. Boom, beauty. And he, he's infatuated. He's like, ah, you know, and, and, and he, gets, he gets manipulated by her father-in-law. Well, look, you can have her for seven years of labor. For seven years, he works, 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 works. Finally, the day of the wedding comes. You can imagine seven years you've been waiting. I mean, this is a pretty exciting day. Huge party, wedding feast, veiled bride. You know, the consummation, the honeymoon, all this stuff. He wakes up the next morning, a little hungover, but feeling good. And he looks over and, whoa, it's not Rachel. It's her older sister, Leah. And he's mad. And he goes to Laban. Like, what's going on? His father-in-law. I wanted Rachel. You gave me Leah. Well, in our custom, you don't marry the younger before the older. And so, here, I'll give you Rachel, too. You just work for me in another seven years. And you get, you know. And so he's just a total manipulation scheme. But he ends up with two wives who happen to be sisters. One is the unloved wife. And one is the beloved wife. Can you imagine how Leah felt? Does God really care? She's a pawn for two manipulative men who are selfish and indulgent. And, and yet God is working out his plan and story through this dysfunctional family. God sees Leah, it says, and, and all of a sudden she's having sons. Woo. I mean, you want to make an ancient Near Eastern patriarch happy, give him boys, you know. And so Leah's having boys. Rachel's not having any boys. So she's like, look, take my servant girl. I'll have some kids through here, her. And so, so he has some kids through Rachel's servant. And Leah's, Leah stops having children. Here, have some kids through my servant girl. So suddenly, suddenly, Jacob has 12 kids through four women. Now, how does that sound for a horror story? <laughs> Dysfunction, messed up world. And yet this is the family of promise of the covenant. Rachel does have two boys. 
She dies giving birth to the secondborn. And Rachel, because she's the beloved wife of Jacob, that oldest son, Joseph, of her offspring is his favorite. He gives him a special jacket. The, the, the family jacket. This would signify him as, as the, the future patriarch, you know, and all the other brothers are jealous and, and there's just this sibling rivalry going on. Here is the family that God's trying to bless the world through. Can you believe it? Joseph has these dreams about the family. And he tells the family, oh yeah, I had a dream. And all of you basically, the two dreams were, you're all basically bowing down and worshiping me. And they're like, who do you think you are? You know, the brothers and even the parents. And, and it's just, and, and they're just, they're sick and tired of it, the, all these brothers. And so finally the day comes, they're out, out in the far off pasture looking after the sheep. Joseph comes to check on him and they're like, hey, I got an idea. Let's kill him. And they're like, no, we can't kill him. He's our blood. But why, you know, finally they, they basically, they sell him into slavery. This group of slave traders is going by like, hey, we got a deal for you. you know, so here's our brother, and he's gone. Boom. We didn't kill him. His blood's on our hands, but we are rid of this troublemaker once and for all. Does God really care? Your own flesh and blood sell you out. Some of you have had family situations that have been like that. You, maybe not that bad, but you, you, you can relate to this sort of sense of like, hey, if family doesn't stick up for you, who does, right? But some of you have, have had family that have let you down. Absolutely. Does God care? Joseph goes down to Egypt. And he gets sold to this guy named Potiphar, who happens to be this official in the Egyptian government. And, 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 and you know, what's interesting is God promised Abraham that through his descendants, everyone will be blessed. So the blessing of God to Abraham now flows through his descendants. And Joseph, everything he puts his hands on, suddenly Potiphar's farm is doing good, his lambs are doing good, his garden's doing good. Everything Joseph puts his hands to. And Potiphar's like, look, Joseph, here's the checkbook. Here's my master card. Do whatever you want. Keep this thing going. Every way to go. Good job. You know, the blessing of God is resting upon Abraham's descendant as Joseph serves Potiphar's house. It's all great. Except Potiphar's wife starts looking at Joseph. Man, that guy is handsome. He's buff. He's in shape. You know, he's not attached, you know. And old Potiphar's always out working, but Joseph, here he is, you know. And she took a strong liking to him and starts hitting on him, starts, you know, trying to woo him in, into, you know, doing things with her. And finally, like, he keeps... You know, pushing her away. Finally, one day, she clears the house and she grabs Joseph. She's dragging him onto her bed. You know what her thoughts are. And Joseph, like, I can't do this. He shirks his shirt and, and, and runs away. And then she cries out, rape! He tried to rape me, you know? And so, you know, the guards are coming in, other slaves. He's jail, you know, he's, he's locked up, thrown into jail. And he's like, I didn't do anything. But of course, Potiphar's got to do something. His wife's whining about this. And they could have killed him, but they didn't. But they throw him into this jail, the king's prison. And and, 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 and Joseph, you got to wonder. you got to wonder if he's like, does God really care? My brothers ditch me. False accusations. I find myself in prison. Does God care? He keeps serving the Lord. The, the person, in, the warden of the prison is like, man, everything Joseph does just works out good. So, look, Joseph, would you just look after the prison? You're stuck here, but... But, you know, it seems like everything you do just brings, you know, like, you know it's working out. So you, you look after everything, all the details of the prison. So, so there he is, you know, doing his thing. God's blessing is extending even into the Egyptian prison. 
And then the day shows up, this, these two guys come into the prison, and they have these dreams, and they're like, we don't know what these dreams mean. And Joseph prays that God gives them the interpretation. Basically, one guy would be executed, one guy would be restored to his position. The, the, the baker would be killed, the butler would be returned to his position. And Joseph like, when you get up there, would you just tell Pharaoh that I, I've had a raw deal this whole way, and, and I, I shouldn't be here. Could you, could you just, you know, plead my case? Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. And the guy goes back to his position, forgets about Joseph. Does God really care? It's those waiting periods where it seems like nothing ha is happening in our life that is the hardest, because you're like, is he even up there? Is, is, is he watching? And you can imagine those days would have been long and hard, and Joseph says, one, okay, I guess I'm destined to live my life out here and die and be buried in an unmarked grave in Egypt, and, and so what did my life count for? For nothing. I mean, I'm, I'm putting words in his mouth. That, that doesn't say, but you can just imagine that there's just the turmoil of his soul. Because like the one chance was this guy, and he seems to have just forgotten about him, and there he is, until the day happens when Pharaoh has a dream. He brings in all of his educated PhDs from the Egyptian the University of Egypt, and none of them can interpret the dream. He's like, well, what's going on? You know, who's going, you know, and, and finally the butler's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, there was this foreigner in the prison. He, he interpreted our dreams, and he was accurate. They actually happened exactly the way he said it. So, so they, you know, clean up Joseph, you know, wash him, shower him, shave him, give him some new clothes, bring him in. And he's like, hey, I hear you can interpret dreams. I can. He said, but God can. Tell him your dream. And he tells him his dream. And basically, Pharaoh's dream is this. There's going to be seven good years, followed by seven bad years. Two different dreams, same interpretation. And Joseph's like, you know, Pharaoh, a good idea would be to save in the good years so that you could survive the bad years. You people that live in Lloydminster for a long time, you know this principle, right? When things are good, save up. When things are bad, you know, live off what you had from before. You know, that's, that's a good principle. And so Pharaoh's like, that's a great idea. And there's only one God that I want to do it. It's you, Joseph. And suddenly Joseph goes from being the forgotten prisoner to being the grand vizier of all of Egypt. And he oversees this massive campaign to stockpile excess grain and food in the years of prosperity. And then suddenly the, the famine hits and people start getting desperate. It's, it's a brilliant plan because guess what the government of Egypt does? They'll buy your land in, in favor for food. So now they take over the whole land and they, you know, they, they increase the, the royal treasury. But then these foreigners start showing up because they're hungry too. And then the day comes when this group of ragtag brothers shows up. It's his brothers. Joseph, dressed in the high regal garments of Egypt, is unrecognizable to them. But he knows who they are. Can you imagine if you were in that position? The guys that sold you out so many years ago, what would you do? Would you want to just take them out and you know, lay a whoop into them? Would you want to suffer, make them suffer? Like, what, you have the power to do anything to these guys. Now Joseph plays them back and forth. You can read about it in the end of the book of Genesis. But finally, you know, he finds out you know, that they've got another brother. Okay, well, if you want more food, make sure you bring your brother with you, your little brother. It's his little brother. It's his blood brother. He, he'd like to see him. He, you know, and, and so he's like, look, you know, Bring your little brother. They bring the little brother the next time. And finally, he reveals himself to them. And he's like, look, guys, this is a bad situation. It's going to be worse and worse and worse. So you guys might as well move down here. So this is how we end up with all of the descendants of Abraham in Egypt. Because Joseph invited his brothers, all their families, all their kids. And they just, they just 
are multiplying and multiplying over 400 years. What we find at the beginning of the book of Exodus is probably 600,000 Israelites living in Egypt. I got a picture here. Uh, you think of Egypt like this, the pyramids, right? Well, well, by this point in the book of Exodus, what's happened is all the people that knew Joseph are, are, are gone and, and, and the, the pharaohs are a little concerned about this group of, you know, expatriates living in Egypt, so they've enslaved them. This stuff is being built on the backs of foreign slaves, including the Israelites. And Pharaoh's like, I'm getting nervous about this group of Israelites. There, there are too many of them. So he tells the, the midwives, look, just would you, would you, when, if it's a boy, just kill him. If it's a girl, let it live. And, and the, the midwives are like, like, okay, I know that this is the, the mandate from the, the authority, but God doesn't, doesn't want us to do that. So they, they didn't follow his, his orders. They, they rejected the governmental intervention in their lives because it wasn't in line with God's will for his people. He says, okay, well, he brings these midwives in. What happens? How come there's kids? They said, well, the, the Egyptian women are kind of wimpy. They take a lot of time and, you know, we have to do epidurals, all that stuff. But the, we, the Hebrews, man, they're just like, boom, they pop it out and they're back working. You know, like, it's, they're totally different. You know, princesses and like, you know, Sheba, you know, like they're, they're, they're totally, you know. And, and so, so, you know, God honors them and even expends their family. But then, then Pharaoh's like, hey, every, every time you see a little Hebrew boy, throw him in the river. What kind of society kills their baby? What kind of cultures has such callous disregard for human life? And we call ourselves modern. This woman has a child and he's pretty and he's beautiful and he's precious and she keeps him until three months old but he's making noise and she finally puts him in a basket. And I have a picture here of the basket. You know, you, you might recognize this picture here. I think it's coming up. There you go. Anyone watch this movie? The, the Ten, Moses and Ten Commandments. So, Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses in the basket, right? And maybe you recognize this picture better uh, for the more modern people. There you go. Prince of Egypt. That's still 20 years ago, I guess. But there he is. Um, Moses. You, you might be familiar with this story, right? But the question that all the people are asking is, does God really care? And so we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 2 and verse... Um, 23. During that long period of time, the king of Egypt died, and the Israelites groaned because of the slave labor. They cried out, and their desperate cry because of their slave labor went up to God. He's enslaved them. He's taken away. You know, he's, he's you know, like they don't have a life. They're not living in the land that was promised to Abraham, and, and, and they're being beaten, and, and, and it's just, it, it's a horrible situation. They're crying out to God. The cry is described as, uh, in, in Ezekiel, this groaning is someone who's broken both arms. That's the groaning that comes out. I don't know if you've broken an arm, but can you imagine breaking both arms, the kind of groan that would come out. This is the, the word for groan. The word for cry out is, describes a, a, a desperation. Four different terms to describe their misery, and twice he mentions their enslavement. They are not living up to what God had promised to their forefather Abraham. And they wonder, does God really care? Is he listening? And it says there in verse 24, God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the Israelites, and God understood. 
So when you think that God doesn't care, understand this is, this is a situation. They're like, okay, we're enslaved. We're stuck. Nothing seems to be changing. This, where is God? They're crying out to him and it says, God hears, God sees, God remembers. Oh yeah, I, I made a promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and now to the descendants of Jacob. And I will keep that promise. God remembers. He doesn't forget you and he does not forget his promises. We forget his promises. We neglect his promises. We dig ourselves into a hole and don't see the sunlight, but he doesn't forget. He remembered and he says, and God understood or God knew. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I get this. I see everything that's going on. And he's preparing to intervene. And he calls Moses. Now Moses is living in Midian. He's had to run away from Egypt because of, you know, he, he was sticking up for his people. And, and he's, you know, he marries a girl in Midian. He's a shepherd. He's enjoying life out on the plains, the solitary life. God often calls men, and, you know, out of that kind of a place to, to serve him. And, and it's all good. And then suddenly one day he runs into this burning bush. I got a picture here. There he is. What is this? And God speaks to him through the bush. And he calls him. And he's like, look, I am. I, I'm, I'm, I'm the Lord. And I want to... I to deliver my people. I'm going to do it through you, Moses. And Moses has this like debate with God. I, I, me? Are you serious? Okay, you know, get lost. You know, you got to find someone else, you know. But, but here he is. He is, and he's like, look, Moses, I'm, I'm going to give you some signs. And you could do these signs. And one of those signs was the staff would become a snake. And then he grabbed the, t- the tail of the snake and become a staff again. He could put his hand inside his shirt and it would come out leprous, put it back in, come out clean. You know, and he had these signs. Look, show the signs to the people. I am doing something new here. I will deliver you. In chapter 4, verse 18, Moses begins the journey to fulfill God's will for his life and for the people of, of Israel. So Moses went back to his father-in-law Jethro and said to him, let me go that I may turn, return to my relatives in Egypt and see if they're still alive. Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. The Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt because all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Then Moses took his wife, his sons, and put them on a donkey and headed back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. The staff is that symbolic of the authority that Moses has, the staff. He's not going on his own initiative. He's only going because God said, I need you there. And it says in verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the wonders I've put under your control. But I will harden his heart and he will not let the people go. So here's the issue. Moses, it's bad right now, but things are going to get worse before they get better. I will fulfill my purpose, but understand it's not going to, you know, he's not going to respond because his heart is hard. People have struggled with this issue of Pharaoh's hardened heart because, like, did God just harden his heart and he's sort of this, like, robot in God's plan? And that's not the idea here. The the idea is that it says in the scriptures, the first time, not five plagues, that that Pharaoh hardens his heart. And then after that, it says God hardens his heart because he's, he's so determined to do his own thing. The idea of a hardened heart is described by Sarna as this state of arrogant moral degeneracy, unresponsive to reason and incapable of compassion. Pharaoh's personal culpability is beyond question. It's a stubborn, unresponsive, obstinate heart. This is Pharaoh. 
See, the problem was Pharaoh was God. He was the highest authority in Egypt. Everything fell under Pharaoh's power and sovereignty. And when this shepherd shows up talking about this other God that Pharaoh doesn't know, Pharaoh's like, I have no way to filter what you're talking about because I am the supreme being of Egypt and of the world, of the universe. How dare you speak to me like that, you poor little shepherd, you know? Who, who are you talking about these bunch of slaves? Like, 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 I am God, basically is what Pharaoh would say. His heart is hard. Here's the danger. Our society and culture has prepared you and has groomed you to think that you are your own God. You're the master of your fate. You are king and queen of your own universe. You own everything you have. You are autonomous and, and, and autocratic in your own kingdom. And, and the Bible doesn't present it that way. No, the Bible presents you as a creature under the sovereign authority of a creator that made you in his image. Different, different perspective. You know, you can do anything that you set your mind to. That's, that's I'm the God and I, I create my own world. You can fulfill the potential God created you for. It's a totally different worldview. Do you understand that? Be careful what you tell your kids. Uh, they, they can, you know, dream and, and, be, and have potential, but their potential truly is found in, in, in God and in Jesus, not in their own powers and abilities. And Pharaoh represents that self-autonomous person who just rules their own kingdom and universe. And, and there he is, and, and uh, God's like, I'm going to harden his heart. And look what he says in verse 22. You must say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. That, that, that special preeminent position, that, that's who this people is. They're, they're special. They, they have a unique status in my sight. And he says in verse 23, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But since you have refused to let him go, I will surely kill your son, your firstborn. I mean, he's telling, look, you, you, you kick on my kids, I'm going to kick at your kids. That's basically what he's telling Pharaoh. Pharaoh's son would become the next god of Egypt. But he's like, look, you're beating on my children. Back off or else watch out what's going to happen. We're going to go there next week, the death of the firstborn. But understand, it's foreshadowed here in Exodus 4, 23. Look, this is what's going to happen. If you, don't, if you don't leave my children alone, if you don't let them do what I've called them to do, that is to serve or to worship me, then I will intervene on their behalf. That is a message of hope for us. Understand that. Anytime any leader or, or, or authority seeks to impede the people of God from doing what God's called them to do, that authority is, is taking on God, and God will intervene on behalf of his people. In his timing, of course. The story goes on. I have actually a picture here. Here's, here's Pharaoh. The cartoon and the, the movie version. He's angry. He's obstinate. When, when Moses goes to him, Pharaoh basically says, Who is the Lord? Who are you even Who's this Yahweh that you're talking about? I don't know who Yahweh is. I don't care who Yahweh is. I'm God, right? I mean, that's how the whole conversation starts. And it doesn't get better. But through piece by piece, God, through Moses and through the plagues, is going to unravel the whole society, culture, spirituality of Egypt and demonstrate that there is one supreme God and he is the Lord. 
not the God of the river or the God of the frog or the God of the locust or the God of, of light or, or the God of Pharaoh himself or his firstborn. The Lord is God and him alone. He speaks in chapter 6, verse 1, some promises to Moses. Now the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh, for compelled by my strong hand, he will release them, and by my strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. So, so he's telling Moses, look, Moses, it's not you. You don't have to find the power and the authority, the strength to somehow do this. I'm going to do it. My hand. God spoke to Moses in verse 2 and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but now, but my, but my, by my name, the Lord, I was not known to them. Maybe it's called El Shaddai. But now I'm revealing myself to you, to this nation as the Lord, Yahweh, a personal God who has a name, who cares for his people, who in fact considers his people to be his very children. The Lord. I also established my covenant with them, verse 4, to give them the land of Canaan where they were living as resident foreigners. I have also heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore tell the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from your enslavement to the Egyptians. I will rescue you from the hard labor they impose, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you to myself for a people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from your enslavement to the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. 22 times in eight verses, he mentions the first person, personal pronoun, I, my. It's not about you. God says, it's about me and what I'm going to do on your behalf. It would be the defining moment of this nation when God frees them from slavery and brings them into freedom into the land of promise. It would be the defining moment, the exodus, which, which the pinnacle piece of that was the Passover celebration, which we'll talk about next week. They were a ragtag clan, a tribal group descended from Abraham. Now they're going to become a nation, God's own possession, his children, his firstborn. Precious. The defining moment. He was going to do it all. And yet it's interesting in verse 9 what the response is. It says in verse 9, Moses told the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and hard labor. Here's the problem. When we get stuck in our own rut, when we kind of dig our own hole, when we surround ourselves by the messages of the world all the time and not hearing God's words or God's messages or God's promises, we can easily discouraged <laughs> because we just aren't listening to the right sources, the right people, the right person. You know, I read tons of stuff. I mean, I get these emails, and I delete a bunch, but then I read others. And, and sometimes it can be overwhelming, the amount of information that we have at our fingertips. It is, it is overwhelming. I love reading, but sometimes it's like, oh, too much, enough. I don't want to know all this stuff, you know. And, 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 you know, if you listen to the news all the time, you're hearing someone's perspective on world events. Probably not God's perspective, but someone's perspective. 
And then you can become discouraged, right? Because you suddenly have lost the ability to, to see God in, the, in all of what you're doing. You can't hear from him because of all the static noise around you. All the social media feeds and the Facebook and the political stuff and the economic stuff. And, the, oh, you know, and we just got to wade through that and hear God speak again. The poor slaves were so, you know, it's like, I, I just don't even know I'm going to feed my family anymore and if I'm going to get beaten on the job site and, and what's going to happen. And, and you're talking about great, precious promises. Woohoo! Now, does that help me now when I'm a slave and getting beaten and living in a tin shack or whatever it is? You, you know what I'm saying? They just didn't hear And the Lord said to Moses, verse 10, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, that he must release the Israelites from his land. But Moses replied to the Lord, If the Israelites don't listen to me, then how will Pharaoh listen to me? Since I speak with difficulties, like, how is this going to work? In our own strength, it doesn't work. But thankfully, God is the Lord of the universe and not us. Thankfully, he has a plan. Thankfully, he knows how this works out. And when we just follow him and allow him to use us in whatever capacity that is, he fulfills his purposes through flawed, messed up, dysfunctional families like mine and yours. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge for the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. God speaks to him and says, look, guys, you can do this. You can can do this. They forgot that God cared. And when you forget that God cares, you find yourself in this lonely place of isolation, of estrangement, of bondage. You're like, how can you tell me God cares? I mean, I mean, how do you know that God cares? Well, this is how I know. God put his own life on the line for me when he sent his son to die on the cross. Romans 5 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this is love. Not that we love God, but God loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, 1 John 4. How do you know that God cares? Because we have this defining moment on the cross when Christ died for us put his own life on the line so that we could have life. So as the exodus is the defining moment for the Israelite nation being delivered out of bondage to slavery and into the freedom and the promised land, so the cross is our defining moment. I bring my sinfulness to, to God and say, I'm a messed up, horrible sinner and I don't deserve anything. And God says, I forgive you because my son laid his life down for you. And because you by faith have received my gift of salvation, you now are, are welcome as a part of my family forever. You're forgiven. You're adopted. Full inheritance you now have through my son. I hope you have that defining moment in your life. If you don't, then you will ask this question again and again and again. Does God care? Does God care? Does God care? And God said, I care. And the greatest point of my care for you is right here. Your other circumstances of life will be up and down and, and it'll be tumultuous and it'll be peaceful and there'll be good times and there'll be bad times. You know, the, the world in which you live in is messed up. 
Sin has affected human health. It has affected the environment. It has affected politics. It has affected every area of our life. But then we come to Christ and we find forgiveness for sins. We find restoration and we find hope and we find God's care for us. Employers will kick you to the curb. Family at times will let you down. Friends will abandon you. You will find yourself in all sorts of circumstances, but when you have this as your defining moment, it will carry you through. Does God really care? Yes, he does. The people in Moses' day had forgotten that. Years went by where they just worked and worked and worked and built bricks. The, the Exodus story is horrific because the moment that Pharaoh finds out that, that, that he's on the target, he makes them work harder. He doesn't provide straw for them. And they're like, okay, God. And Moses is, is kind of thrown out, you know, you know, like, you know exposed because he's like, yeah, God's going to deliver you. And then all of a sudden things get tougher. Sometimes things get tougher before they get better. But as you read through the New Testament, you'll find that God redeems suffering in the life of his children. In fact, he employs it as a resource for your sanctification. In fact, you can rejoice in tribulation and suffering, it says in the New Testament. Like, how do you do that? It doesn't feel like God is caring for me when I'm going through a hard time. But in Christ, the defining moment of your life, it changes your whole perspective and outlook on suffering. There's going to be tough days ahead for all of you and me it will look different for each and every one of us. But when I have Christ as my defining moment, the anchor point in my life, it's kind of like getting a little splash in the fishing boat. That's all it is. Without Christ, it's like I'm, you know, I'm in a tsunami, you know, and I'm getting rolled over in the surf, and, I, and there's no, no up or down. But, but with Christ, I got this anchor, and it's like, oh, I'm getting splashed. Oh, well. Because I've got this defining moment. I'm in God's forever family. I belong to him. And whatever happens in this world, it happens. I know there is a table set in heaven with a name card with my name on it. And I'm going to sit with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and sup with him. Celebrate the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world for my sin. And when I'm up there, whatever happened down here will just seem like a, a little flea on the back of a huge, you know, mammoth. God really does care. He hasn't given up on you. He will allow you to go through some hard times. But he will redeem those times for his glory and for your benefit, if you will trust him. Team, I'm going to invite you forward. Team's going to kind of sing us in a song as we recalibrate our hearts and minds towards Jesus. And as we close in prayer, I just know some of you came with heavy burdens today, and I, I encourage you to return to the Lord today. If you have not had this defining moment of the cross of Jesus Christ and receiving God's gift of salvation, today is the day I just invite you to receive God's gift. He wants to define your life in a relationship with him. And that does make all the difference. Would you turn to him today? And if you have that defining moment, you are given the great and awesome honor and privilege of sharing that message with our community. There's a lot of hurting families in our community, a lot of hurting individuals. 
looking for hope, looking for help, not sure if anyone even knows that they're alive or, or that, any, that it matters, but it does matter because it matters to God and it should matter to us. So let us share the message of God's love and care as presented in Christ and let us be the hands and feet of Christ in our community. So would you pray with me as we, as we close this sermon prepare to sing. Lord, Father in heaven, you love us. You sent your son to die for us. He rose again and now we follow the living Lord. Help us, Lord, in those times when we feel all alone. Those times of abandonment. The times when we cannot see the light at the end of the tunnel, Lord. The times when we suffer physically, when we, when we feel the economic crunch, when we have relational breakup, Lord, encourage our hearts with your love and your care. We come back to the cross today, Lord, as our defining moment. We are your children. You are our Father. Thank you for your love. And help us to share that love with our community. With those that are hurting, those that are wondering if you care, give us the opportunity this week to share the good news that you do care with someone in our life. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Father God, I pray we'd wrap your arms around your children here. Your Holy Spirit minister to our hearts just communicating your love through us, Lord, may we communicate your love to this community, to this country, to this world. And so use us as your children, as your family. Show us someone this week that we can love and share. And point to the wonderful truths of Jesus Christ. And so we give ourselves to you now. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and everybody said, God bless you.